Thank you very much for being here on this lovely Sunday morning. Um, it reminds me of the old days when we used to get up early on a Sunday morning, go to church and hear the vicar give, le uh, not lectures, but uh, sermons about serious matters. I'm, I'm glad that you're willing to face serious matters on a, on a Sunday morning. I will do my best to imitate the vicar, though I promise to use some words that the vicar never did use, <laughs> such as patriarchy, <laughs> unemployment. Okay. I want to start out with the, the, the issue that, that Sue posed to us. Why spend, in the context of all about women, uh, why spend some time talking all about blokes? And I want to start by assuring you that I will not be uh, doing that on the grounds that we do hear from many commentators that women now have it all and it's men's turn now for some understanding and sympathy and special programs. In fact, it has been men's turn already. It's been men's turn for about 5,000 years. And I want to show you some of the historical proof of this. One of the first actual pieces of historical evidence about masculinity. From very early Egyptian history, um, this is a representation of the Pharaoh Nama from the first dynasty, who in some uh, Egyptian stories was the founder of the ancient kingdom. Uh, of Egypt. And you can see he, he was credited with having united Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt into the, the great civilization. And you can see him here engaged in the practice of unifying the Lower Egypt with Upper Egypt through a technique which has come down to us as a central part of dominant forms of masculinity. One could imagine uh, our Malcolm, for instance, feeling very much like doing this to Bill um, as the uh, parliamentary drama unfolds. So there is a strong, a great and, and a very ancient social tradition of the making of honoured forms of masculinity through exercises of social domination. And that continues into our own day, obviously. Um, if you look at the top uh, transnational corporations which run the economy of the world, uh, as the um, <coughs> Fortune magazine in the United States does every year, um, Fortune, uh, at its last count, uh, listed the top 500 transnational corporations in the world and counted the number of men and women who were chief executive officers of them. And you know what? More than 95% of them were men. So top levels of economic power are still substantially a monopoly of men. Privileged groups of men, of course, highly privileged, but nevertheless, in gender terms, that's where the power still lies. And this is true not only in the corporate world, but also in the political world. Here, for instance, is the uh, ruling party of China, uh, the Communist uh, Party of China. This is a meeting of its central committee. Count the women. 
How many do you get? I think there are three if you look really hard. But that's, you know, not uncommon in the elite power groups in political systems around the world. So if Hillary Clinton actually gets up uh, in the coming presidential election in the United States, she will be the first woman in that office in the more than 200 years that the United States uh, political system has existed. And if you look at the other you know, key form of power in the world, that is military power, you're looking at a stack of male generals, admirals, uh, and air force commanders too. So it's been men's turn in those terms, in terms of, of where power resides in society for a very long time. It's still the case. And for that reason, I have to say, I'm not tremendously uh, enthused when I hear talk about how there's a crisis of masculinity going on in our culture. Uh, that seems to me extremely implausible when we look at the actual distribution of power and resources in the world. But there is still cultural change about masculinity going on. Uh, we might even say that there's a kind of crisis of stereotypes about men and masculinities. Um, there is still uh, you know, a, a conception of true masculinity being a kind of hard, hairy phenomenon, um, which is sort of naturally the centre of, of attention, naturally on top. So we still have our media full of images like this, uh, representations, popular uh, representations of admirable masculinities, uh, with women on the margins, almost literally on the sidelines, cheering the the blokes on. Now, that image of there being one true masculinity, which is displayed for us by our, our footballers, um, is deep-seated, but there's a lot of research evidence that it's fundamentally wrong, um, that the realities of human life uh, show an enormous variety of forms of masculinity, of ways of being a man that can be found uh, if you go looking. The anthropologists, for instance, have gone looking in the course of their trawling of different cultures around the globe, and they have provided us, in fact, with some of the most dramatic evidence of the different forms of masculinity and the different ways of being a man that a society can produce and honor. So, for instance, anthropologists have found uh, communities, societies in the world in which all of the young men are homosexual, actually engage in homosexual practices and not in heterosexual practices. It's the kind of place where Corey Bernardi would feel right at home. Um, and uh, if you're wondering how the societies reproduce themselves, the answer is all the young men turn heterosexual at a later stage of life, marry and have children. Uh, those are communities which simply organise human sexuality in a different way from the way we do, where being a true man is regarded as you know, necessarily being heterosexual. 
there are many varieties, many ways of organising our sexual lives, which you can find. And that fact of there being multiple forms of masculinity in the world, multiple ways of being a man, is true within the same society, within our society, for instance. If you go looking in institutions like schools or workplaces, you'll often find significantly different patterns of masculinity there, people living in, in uh, along different kinds of trajectories. I was once doing research uh, in a school, which I won't name, um, but it's quite a well-known uh, elite private school um, where <clears throat> we were interviewing the kids um, about their, their way of life and their, their images and so forth. And it turned out that there was quite a, a dominant, a hegemonic form of masculinity in the school, which was exhibited by the, uh, the boys in the first 15, uh, so to speak. And they were conventionally known around the school as the jocks. Um, okay, there you have it. But the school didn't only depend on the rugby players for its prestige. There was another group, another kind of masculinity, which the same school actually needed for its academic performances, which was part of its marketing strategy. And the boys who were good at schoolwork, getting the top marks in the exams rather than the football field, were widely known around the school as the Cyrils. And the interesting thing is the school needed both. It wouldn't function well without the two different kinds of masculinity. And that situation, well, a little bit dramatic in that case, is not at all unusual. More than that, as our economy, our social institutions, our social arrangements and culture changes, we get new forms of masculinity, just as we get new forms of femininity emerging, and indeed they're, they're interrelated. Uh, so as we get new industries, for instance, um, with new technology or transformations of, of, uh, of the uh, economic structure, uh, we get shifts in the most honoured and prestigious forms of masculinity. So let me show you another example of this to contrast with the image we've had there. Anyone recognise him? Okay, we're more, much more familiar with him in middle age, uh, of course, but um, if you don't, this is Steve Jobs as a, as a young lefty uh, about the time they were involved in, uh, in inventing the first Mac. Um, and the high-tech industries have actually been a quite interesting site for the emergence of different patterns of masculinity associated with certain kind of power and a lot of money, um, but not the super aggressive jock uh, physical power uh, model of, of a dominant form of masculinity. And those changes too are flowing through to, to younger generations uh, apart from this. Okay, so we need to think about the material base of what's happening in gender relations, of how we construct our masculinities and femininities. And here I think we need to remember uh, what the material situation of the bulk of men and the bulk of women actually is. There is, for instance, a long-established wage gap, as the economists put it, 
to the advantage of men in general and the disadvantage of women. And there's an interesting debate about how big and how stable the wage gap is. According to some economists, the difference in income between men and women attributable to gender prejudice, uh, to, to attitudes, is actually very small, around about 3% if you compare women and men with exactly the same training in exactly the same job with exactly the same levels of experience. But of course, all of those things are not usually equal. If you compare all women with all men, and this is the, the figure you usually see in the media, um, uh, all women and all men who are full-time workers, uh, so full-time, uh, equivalent full-time uh, wage rates, uh, the difference is around 17%, and that hasn't changed much for 20 years in Australia. So the economic marginalisation of, of women has remained quite stable. But that figure itself is a radical underestimate of the true level of economic inequality across women and men in total. So if we look at super, uh, for instance, superannuation uh, entitlements as a better indication of the cumulative income that women and men have over a working life, um, the average superannuation entitlement for women in Australia at the moment is around 60% of the average entitlement of men, and a larger number of women don't have any super entitlement at all, are just outside the system. So the level of overall economic inequality in gender terms in, in our country is much greater than those conventional wage gap measures would suggest. And that has deep roots in our way of life in the division of labour between men and women in households, the very large difference that still exists in the you know, percentage of housework that is done by, by women and men, uh, in the much greater, enormously greater uh, proportion of women who actually leave work to care for young children, which is work that men can do, but very few of them do. And it's in that context of large differences, large economic differences between men as a group and women as a group, and major differences in domestic labour and care work, that the classic hegemonic masculinity in Australian society was formed. Uh, the kind of thing that we see if we get hold of a copy of Women's Weekly from the 1950s, where the men wear fedoras and the women wear aprons, um, the notion of masculinity as necessarily involving being a breadwinner. So being a good man was to be a good breadwinner, being able to support a wife and child in the home. And that was, to a certain extent, an economic reality in the first half of the 20th century. The wage rates were set for that purpose, with women's wages markedly lower than men's, and men's calculated on the basis that a man was supposed to be supporting breadwinning for a whole family. But that was then, and this is now. That economic system has been dismantled. We're now in a neoliberal era. Our economy has moved. We've basically dismantled the manufacturing industries we used to have. 
We've shifted to high-tech mining, which employs many, many fewer people. Uh, we've dismantled much of the old wage system. We've created uh, new economic pressures and new economic needs. And that economic change, that change in the nature of our productive uh, system in Australia, has had a particular impact on particular groups of men. It's particularly impacted working class youth. So that it's in the groups who in earlier generations would have looked forward to a life of stable employment, for instance, in heavy industry, in trades, uh, and the like, where there's now you know, very large-scale structural unemployment and unemployment in the western suburbs of Sydney, western suburbs of Melbourne, northern suburbs of Adelaide, where what work uh, young working-class men can look forward to is mostly casual. It's not the kind of thing on which you can buy a house and expect to support a family. Uh, in consequence, there's a high level of educational disengagement among this particular group of young men. So if we are actually looking for a crisis of masculinity, that I think is where we find it. And it's due not to eating quiche, but to eating dirt. And it's those young men who, of course, are targeted by the media and by right-wing politicians in fear campaigns. So we have a fairly constant drumbeat uh, of uh, you know, excitement and anxiety uh, about gangs, about one-punch killings, uh, about you know, young men loose on the street. We hear this in the rhetoric of Donald Trump, you know, the thing about how Mexico is sending rapists into the United States. We hear undertones of this in the rhetoric about border protection in this country and the war on terror. So a lot of our public life nowadays, a lot of the drama of our public life is constructed in effect as a masculinity confrontation between dangerous masculinities of whom working class lads in, within Australia are one form but the, the loose and dangerous men outside are another and you know, the protections erected by our political authorities. Now to say that that's a drama and to a considerable extent a fictional drama uh, is not to deny gender-based violence. Uh, women are vulnerable to a whole range of forms of violence from men. Uh, family violence, we know, everybody at this uh, event, I'm sure, is, appreciates the, you know, the simple realities that uh, most gender-based violence is actually in the home uh, and from men who are uh, perfectly well known to the victims. But there's also institutional violence of the kind that we see in that dreadful Australian concentration camp in Nauru. And in some parts of the world, uh, there are more severe forms of collective violence again. Um, I've been involved for some years in a solidarity group uh, called Sydney Action for Juarez, um, which responded to a call from Mexican feminists for solidarity around uh, a situation which some of you will know about in the 
border city of uh, Juarez, northern Mexico, uh, where a whole lot of young women were turning up dead, uh, their bodies in the desert around, uh, found in the desert around Juarez, often extremely brutally treated. Uh, a situation where there was complicity from the state, from police, uh, ignorance uh, and, and disregard uh, from the authorities who should have been dealing with it. That became a massive international scandal. Um, and I have to say that, uh, I mean, it was so severe that Mexican feminists invented the term femicide to describe this collective um, uh, violence against women and femicide is by no means, although the situation Juarez has improved a bit, uh, is still found um, in, in uh, far too many parts of the world. Now, this level of violence, both the routine violence in our homes and the extreme violence of, of camps and situations like Juarez, is not something that we can attribute to the biology of men. This is not due to a male brain which is programmed for violence in the way too many uh, of our myth-makers uh, still, still claim. It arises, and there's, there's lots and lots of research on gender-based violence now on which we can, uh, from which we can get a, a picture of the real background to this. It arises from situations of social instability and poverty uh, to some extent, though violence occurs in all social levels in our society too, but especially where there are models of masculinity, hegemonic masculinities, which emphasise the dominance of men over women and the dominance of men over other men too. And in those situations, uh, a point which is, I think, very, very creative insight that has come out from the work of some of our criminologists is that violence does not express a pre-existing masculinity so much as it's done in order to make masculinity, to claim an honoured form of masculinity, which is a different dynamic altogether, but is not actually particularly new. Here's an example from the most famous recruiting poster in the First World War. You're not a proper man, Daddy, unless you signed up for the trenches, is the message. And that is the pattern, that is the dynamic involved in quite a lot of other forms of, of gendered violence. And I find this you know, particularly troubling inside because so much cultural work is done uh, in our mass media to create that impression that an honoured masculinity is one that involves dominance, especially physical dominance. Here's one of my favourite Australian newspaper headlines. It's from a little time back. Some of you will remember the time when there was a 100th anniversary of rugby in Australia. And um, that was the... Uh, the leading Sydney newspaper's um, um, headline about the, uh, the celebratory test. Now, it's worth remembering. I mean, one, one can simply just get, get so, you know, uh, one, one can get shattered by some of, some of this stuff. And it's worth remembering um, 
and the, the case of the trenches is a perfectly clear example um, that in much masculine violence, much gendered violence, it's men also, or men predominantly, who are getting hurt. It was, in fact, mainly men uh, who were uh, uh, killed in, in war. Uh, that has changed as war has increasingly targeted civilian populations. Uh, but it's still the case that in many forms of masculine violence, it is other men uh, who are targeted. And it's also worth remembering that those same statistics that give us our pretty horrifying uh, indications of the number of women who suffer domestic violence or rape in the course of their lives also give us evidence that the majority of men are not actually violent, are not physically violent. Um, though very large numbers of men are complicit in the cultural constructions of masculinity that actually support gender-based violence. Nevertheless, those things about men are also worth remembering, that men also can be targets of gender violence, and many men are not complicit in it. So they're also good guys, which is important to remember. Some of my best friends are men. Um, <laughs> And uh, some do better than just being good guys. Uh, some are actively out there on the front line working for gender equality uh, and against gender-based violence. Uh, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with some forms of this. Most of you have probably heard of the White Ribbon Campaign. Some of you may even have been involved in it, an international program against violence against women which began in Canada in the wake of that terrible massacre by a crazy young man of women in an engineering school in Canada and has since uh, spread from Canada to many other parts of the world. It's one of the most effective uh, community-based anti-violence programs there is. Australia has not been absent from this scene either. So I'd like to mention um, the, it, at the University of Wollongong, uh, we have now, uh, I shouldn't say we have, um, <clears throat> but uh, the colleagues there have created the Centre for Research on Men and Masculinities, one of the few such centres in the world. Uh, they have been pioneers in this area and a good deal of their work is directed towards men's engagement in gender equality work and anti-violence work. This is something that's also happened in Australian schools. So um, here's an example, somewhat old example, but a very nice one, of a program that was developed by a group of teachers, mostly men, teachers, for teenage boys, to create a safe space within Australian high schools to, for talking about questions of gender relations, sexuality, identity, uh, and the problems that teenage boys do face. Um, in, in shaping their lives in relation to the gender order. And that kind of thing, I mean, that's an older example, but it is still going on. The Safe Schools Program, which is currently so much at issue, is in, a, a descendant of this kind of, of work in schools and an admirable project program too. Uh, and in setting up this kind of educational work, teachers have one great asset. And that is that the boys are interested in these issues. Most boys 
actually want to know about sexuality, about gender, about possible pathways for themselves, about future relations, about what's happening among girls and women. This is stuff that boys really want to know as well as need to know. And you can, therefore, you know, provided you're not harassed uh, too much by the politicians and the man school managers, you can develop very interesting educational work with boys around these themes. Finally, I want to mention the men who, not in public uh, arenas, but in private arenas, including the House, um, are working at an everyday level uh, towards more equal gender relations. I'm thinking, for instance, of the rather small and often laughed at pioneering group of house husbands, that is, men uh, who have actually taken on the principal role of caring for young children uh, while their women partners are earning, uh, the, uh, are winning the bread. It does happen. And there is considerably more involvement now than even a generation ago of men in the care of young children, which I find one of the most you know, encouraging things, I guess, in everyday life. Uh, to see examples of that around my suburb. Um, of course, the men who begin to undertake you know, uh, serious childcare don't always quite get it right. Um, so you, here's an example of someone who is trying to combine their engagement in the, in the economy uh, with childcare, and it's not quite working, so you can make mistakes, uh, and we have to allow a certain amount of space uh, for these mistakes to be worked through. Uh, but I find this still a very hopeful picture. I mean, as someone who is making a bit of an effort, and there is much work to be done, but there's some social movement going on in conventions and understandings of masculinity. So my message then is don't give up on men. Um, some of them are indeed incorrigible shits and we keep electing them to parliament, but many are not. Um, some are seriously trying to change conventions and, um, and practices uh, like these. And it's worth remembering that when the women's movement has made major advances in uh, es establishing, in institutionalising women's rights, uh, advances in women's economic position, equal opportunity measures, anti-discrimination measures, even going back to when, when we won the vote, it has almost always been in alliance with groups of progressive men. I think that's the truth about our political history um, that is still true and still important for the strategy of change. So um, that's where I will end with this hopeful image uh, above uh, and the thought that even a few good men in alliance with a stroppy women's movement can actually change our gender system. Thank you. Thank you so much, Raywan. Uh, we do have some time for questions, so if you'd like to make your way to the microphones, there's one just here. 
Uh, there's a light, number one. And above, for the people upstairs. Is there a microphone there? So, if you'd like to take, please. Ah, Eva. Hi. Raywin, thank you for that. And it was interesting hearing that history. But the question I've got, and I think it's a question that this entire conference, you know, event needs to think about, is how do we change it? Because what we've got now, unfortunately, is a push from feminists and feminisms to do things on male terms. We've got more and more of a push to push women into paid work, not to cut working hours so that everybody can have a go at the unpaid work. I've got a theory we should tax people who don't do any housework, and that might be one of the ways of solving the deficit problem. <laughs> like it. But I think that we actually need, and I've got something coming out on this, that we actually need to restart the revolution. Because I think we're stuck. I think we've accepted masculine ideas of what success are. I think the women that get into top positions do it because they're not going to be a threat to the system. And we're not doing any systems change. So I'd like your comments about how do we actually do systems change so we change the underlying things. Because at the moment we're relying on individuals to sort of go home and fix things, even though men who do that are regarded as wusses and not serious workers and various other things. Okay. We need to get back to the idea of systems change, and I want to know if you've got any ideas how we do it. Great. Mm. Thanks. It's a lovely question, and I wish I could answer it. <laughs> I really do. Um, I think Eva has you know, put her finger on, on the, the real strategic problem that, that everybody interested in gender change is, is facing. I, um, I agree with you that um, most of the women who actually gain some kind of organisational power, that 4.8% who actually did make it into the, the, um, the global 500, are very much doing it on the terms of the existing masculinist culture that's there. Um, and uh, Judy Weissman, the sociologist whom I'm sure you know, Australian sociologist who's done some wonderful work on, on women and technology, but also did some terrific work about women in management. Um, she did some research on women who at least got it to the middle levels of management in high-tech uh, international firms and investigated what made it possible for them to do it. And she called her book Managing Like a Man, that was the only way that you could get to that level of organisational power. So uh, I, I, I agree with you. There's nothing revolutionary about changing the personnel at the top, even though there might be symbolic gains of that from, from that in a small way for younger generations. Um, but the, the problem is a structural one. I mean, it is in the, the way the economy is organised, uh, where the the growth points of, of profit and investment are. And there we've seen, you know, uh, the, the, the growth of industries which are essentially uh, dominated by men but not providing large-scale employment opportunities. And with the end of the mining boom, we're now, you know, facing major issues about that. Um, at the same time, we do find growth points uh, if you like, in cultural change in other areas. So yesterday was Mardi Gras, and there was a mass turnout for it, you know, hundreds of thousands of people coming out to do something. I mean, it's not entirely clear always what, uh, 
but there's something going on there uh, on a fairly large scale. Um, so forms of cultural struggle then are, are, you know, achieving some sorts of change. But what uh, I guess I would see as most important for intellectual workers and uh, to, to be doing at this point is coming up with some visions of a possible economic future, a, a possible way of the society actually supporting and pr producing itself um, that won't you know, produce the kinds of you know, growing hierarchies that we've got now. Um, I'm afraid that's not a strategy of political change. Uh, it's simply one element of it, but it's something I think we need quite urgently to come up with. Good. Thank you. Do you have a question? Is that okay? Yeah. Uh, hi, Raymond. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to hear you speak. Um, you mentioned Steve Jobs and you were talking about the school and how they had sort of a jock and nerd dynamic going on. I'm really interested in the way that there are several kinds of crises of masculinity in sort of what we would call geek cultures in the technology industry. And I was thinking about how there's been a series of suicides um, in the Silicon Valley, young men who are doing quite well for themselves, so, um, you know, ahead of their sort of economic tier in the tech industry, and yet are suffering for some reason. Uh, they're lonely. They have a identity crisis, so to speak. I was just wondering if you had any additional comments about how masculinity operates in those um, non-sport-based intelligence sectors. Mm. Ah. Yeah, I have read some really interesting research about exactly that pattern in, in the Silicon Valley context. Um, and it, it's characteristic there that um, unemployment is, sorry, employment is extremely insecure. It's very high paid at the top level, but it's totally insecure and dependent on connections and opportunities and, you know, odd technological change that create, create uh, gaps and needs. Um, so there's a very high level of stress. That's what I would immediately look to in thinking about suicide of young men in those contexts, insecurity and stress. Um, and, um, and also not all that much social support. So if you're working at the end of a, of a telephone line or a, um, an internet connection, you don't have a continued work group that can provide you, you know, some kind of social context and support when you're dealing with, with tough issues. <coughs> so I don't think the, the Steve Jobs nerd masculinity is itself an admirable model for the way men should go. Mm. Uh, it's to me simply a sign of turbulence, of the production of different patterns of masculinity that, that give us a hope that we're not all stuck in the, the kind of football masculinity image forever. Um, and um, one of the interesting things about nerd masculinity is, of course, is that they're very international. Uh, the software industry in India, for instance, uh, is now a large part of the global software industry. And some of those pressures are appearing among uh, young men in India too, um, which, of course, you know, another cultural context, which is very hard to read from outside. Um, but the, the, the global shift in high-tech industries is itself part of what's producing turbulence in masculinities and possibilities of change. Mm -hmm. That's true. Thank you very much. 
Is there somebody upstairs at that mic? No. Okay. Can't quite see from here. Thanks. Um, uh, I've grown up in the, the sort of generation of, you know, you can do it all and um, get amongst it and, and felt very confident in that until I had children and <laughs> it felt like everything changed quite significantly and suddenly I found myself in a situation where my partner was senior, earned more money and I was made redundant while on maternity leave because I wasn't willing to go back full time. So we've ended up um, in, a, in a situation very quickly and quite shocking to me um, of him being at work and me not not at the moment and me doing most of the domestic. My, my, this, is, this is a challenge for me in terms mm. of identity, but my mm. question to you is, I have two sons, a one-year-old and a four-year-old, and one of the big crises for me is the role model that I'm giving to them. Oh. Have you got any um, advice of what we can tell our sons and daughters, for that matter, um, when the system hasn't been fixed? How do we encourage them in a world where the system isn't fixed to um, be different in the next generation? Mm. Mm. Good question. Great question. Um, I went on Kids Radio about a week ago uh. about talking about bringing up boys. Um, and it, it's, I think, a, a situation that's produced a lot of anxiety among mothers, um, either in the kind of situation that you've found yourself in uh, or simply feeling that there must be some magical way that you bring up boys that's different from bringing up girls and that they don't know about and hence go to you know, very strange sources for, for advice. And what I was able to say is there is a mass, absolute mass of evidence from psychological research for the last hundred years about psychological differences between boys and girls. And the very reassuring result of 100 years of research on this subject is that boys and girls are very similar psychologically. <laughs> They're not very different. There's enormous overlap in the psychological makeup of boys and girls. It's just not the case. The boys have a different learning style from girls or, you know, the girls are fundamentally more emotional than... I mean, all of these kinds of stereotypes about gender differences among kids, you know, to wash out uh, in, by, by taking seriously what the research is saying. So if you have some idea of how to bring up girls, you also know how to bring up boys. Don't, just don't worry about it. Um, they are the same kind of creature fundamentally, though given the gender order that they're being brought up in, they are likely to have different trajectories, they will have different expectations placed upon them, uh, they will likely be treated differently by peers and teachers and relatives and so on and so forth. And that's where the real difficulties in, in, uh, in education and, and child rearing uh, come up. Um, I don't think we should lay too much weight on the idea of providing role models. I and mean, role model is a very simplified idea of how children learn. Um, children are active and energetic learners. They go and find things out for themselves. You remember doing that yourself in childhood. Um, they have many sources of information, some of them pretty dire, like football broadcasts on the, on the mass media, some much more benign, some much more diverse. 
um, they'll interact as they grow up with wider and wider groups of adults. So it's not all on you um, is important to remember. And one of the most important things you can do as a parent, I think, is help them navigate that widening world that they're coming into. Talk to them about it. Um, give them tools for, you know, researching the world, um, for thinking about the world, encourage discussion, um, you know, give them nice things to read, like the paper bag princess. Um, but, you know, also, you know, give them the usual stuff and talk to them about it. Um, so one of your roles as a parent, I think, is helping them to learn interpretation, helping them to, uh, to learn autonomy, um, and, um, you know, to the extent it's, it's you know, possible in the, the dynamics of the family, help them to understand your situation too. Talk about that. Um, and, and trust, you know, that they will be capable of you know, forming reasonable opinions. Um, may take time, but that's the way I go about it. Mm. The only thing I slightly worry about that is women increasingly taking responsibility for changing the gender order as well as everything else. Yeah, um, <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. Um, and look, it is true that, um, you know, given the kind of inequalities that I was giving a small sample of in my talk, the pressure for change inevitably will mainly come from women. Mm. You know, in the pressure for change in, in you know, the classical industrial structure came mainly from workers, not from employers. They were doing all right. Yeah. They didn't need to change capitalism. The workers did. Um, Similarly, in, the, in a patriarchal gender order, the main pressure for change will inevitably come from women. Um, now, there are so many different angles of that, you know, psychological, cultural, economic, organisational, educational, uh, that it can feel we've got an endless burden. Um, and in a way, that's true. I mean, it's, it's, not, um, it's not a fantasy. It's not just an anxiety. It is actually true that change towards an equal gender order will have to involve struggle on all of those fronts. Um, my main argument there would be don't individualise it. Mm. You know, this has to be a collective effort. It has to be a, collect a shared project uh, if it's to work at all. Uh, look for support. Um, look for divisions of labour among women. Um, and, and don't don't blame ourselves. It's mm. really important. Yeah. Hi. Um, I think I'm probably one of those teenage boys you referred to earlier who um, is interested in you know, all of what makes a man and uh, femininity and gender roles in general. And I found a site that I've been reading for a while called The Art of Manliness, which I know has sort of semantic issues, perhaps. Um, but it makes the point, uh, generally that um, a sort of a traditional masculinity might be a better option to the, what we might call the, the alpha-beta male type situation that we, we have currently, although that's certainly more nuanced than that now. So it proposes sort of a return to um, 
the previous ideals of, of courage and honour, providing for family and all of that. And it, and it does not suppose that everyone is suited for this, that there are different types of masculinities, of course. Um, but the, the main metaphor it, it, it makes is not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, in that when we introduce uh, feminism and try to strike out sexism from, from masculinity, which was obviously uh, present in the past, that we shouldn't get rid of all of these traditional masculine ideals because when focused properly, they can be a great force for good, as you have said. Would you, I've heard from other people that um, they think this is incompatible with modern feminism. Um, I'd like to hear your views on that. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, a couple of things about that. Um, one is the thought that um, I've heard best expressed by, by an African psychologist, uh, Copano Ratelle, um, that we have to be aware that traditional masculinity itself is complex and plural. So there are, there's not just one traditional masculinity. Um, there, there are also you know, traditions of gay masculinity, of engaged masculinity, of egalitarian masculinity too. So our history is more complex than, than, than many current uh, representations allow. Um, but it's also the case that, you know, um, a male-dominated, a masculinised culture has produced things of value, art, literature and so forth, which we don't want to lose from our, uh, our repertoire, if you like, um, but which are, are, are worth keeping to the extent they can be disconnected from oppression, violence and social mm. hierarchy. Uh, I think that is... I mean, I, I'm a little optimistic about men. I might have concluded on a wry note. Um, but I also do see important changes over time. And that awareness of there being different possibilities for men and that uh, also awareness that the heavy-handed dominant forms of masculinity have costs for men costs in violence, in poor health, poor nutrition, and poor relationships with children and often with women. <coughs> Those facts are also increasingly recognised, so that there are more, more possibilities, more pathways available for young men now, I think, than there have been in the past, and that's a ground for optimism. But we still need to do the hard work of building new structures, new institutions, new economic strategies, a new culture. That's still to come. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks. Okay, well, thank you, everyone, for the session. Thank you, in particular, to Raywan. It turns out we didn't talk all about men. We talked all about the gender order. So good luck with changing that. Thank you. <laughs> That's all right. Thank you.